one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. We were just reminiscing about the theater show that took America by storm in the mid 90s. It was called Stomp. <laughs> Do you guys remember Stomp? Uh, maybe we should save it for the mini. Let's save it for the mini. Okay. Let's, you know what we're going to do is we're going to watch a clip of Stomp. Oh boy. And we'll talk about it on okay. the mini. Okay. Sounds good. Look, you had to be there. The commercials, they were everywhere. Okay. Now let's start out the show how we usually do, which is by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. And they donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And uh well, I should probably open that up first. Look, getting off to a great start this week. Stomp. I'm not even cutting this out. Shh. Thank you, Desi. Thanks for <laughs> vamping with me. And this week we had Rebecca. We had A.M. Wood, which I believe is uh, supposed to be like morning wood. Very common. Very. It's a very common thing that happens. We had Sarah, Camille, Mimi, Adriana, Nicole, Sharjuma, Michael, Jessica, Tara, David, Samantha, Cody, Cindy Lee, Aaron, Elizabeth, Ciara, Michelle, Yvonne, and Maddie. Thanks, guys. Thank you all so much. Sometimes I listen, I'm like, wow, we have so many different names. <laughs> I know, it's great. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> I like when I see the pound sign. Oh. Because the- then I'm like, oh, that's a UK listener. Oh. Oh, that's right. For, in the, you mean in the monetary amount. Yeah. 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 And there's a Canadian one, too. It's like slightly different. Is it? Yeah. I don't know what it's called. Please forgive me. Okay. Well, we'll we'll do our own research later. Well, they said it couldn't be done, (laughs) but I did it, Desi. Oh, boy. I went into my bag of tricks, (laughs) and I found another great story from 1920s Los Angeles. (laughs) Just look, it's never ending. They're going to keep coming. Okay. And I decided, since we had just talked about how incredible it is that I am able to pull all of these stories out of my ass, Yes. why not just do another one? Okay. Now, this story is about the Los Angeles River torso killing. Wait, what? (laughs) Just buckle up. Okay. My research for this episode was entirely based on, was entirely from... Los Angeles Times newspaper articles from the 1920s, which are always very fun to read. Let's get started. At around 6 p.m. on April 4th, 1929, Juan Manriquez and his eight-year-old son, Raymond, were walking alongside the L.A. River in the Linwood area when they made a gruesome discovery. A woman's torso was floating (gasps) in the river. Juan alerted the Compton police, who began a homicide investigation. The headless torso was taken to the medical examiner's office. The victim was determined to be a woman about 25 years of age, blonde or brown hair, and about 5'7". 
It was believed she had been murdered and dismembered prior to being transported and dumped into the river. The medical examiner surmised that the murder had taken place sometime within 48 hours of the torso's discovery. There were no injuries to the torso itself, but the sharp, clean cuts that had been made where the limbs once were suggested that this dismemberment was performed by someone with a medical background. It was suspected that the killer had attempted to bury the body in the riverbed because of flooding caused by that week's rain, the torso had become dislodged and subsequently flooded, floated downstream the river to where it was found. So there had been a big rainstorm in LA this week. So when they found this torso, it was like sticking partially out of the riverbed. Police estimated that the dump site could have been as far north as the 9th Street Bridge. Okay. Her organs were taken to a chemist for a tox screen, but determining the identity of this woman would be a tall order. Yeah. This is 1929. And all of the sort of fingerprints are gone, right? It's just a torso. That's it. So this is like... How the hell do we even begin begin with this? Compton Police Captain William Bright called on every citizen in L.A. County to help identify her, asking the public if they knew of any woman matching her description that had gone missing. As they combed through the missing persons reports, the police also began to search for the rest of the body. A woman's shoe was discovered on the riverbank near Compton, less than a mile away from where the torso was found. The shoe was sticking out of quicksand. I didn't know there was quicksand over there. That's scary. Yeah. While they were retrieving it, a police officer began to sink. Oh, my God. And he got stuck in the quicksand, and it went up to his like waist. Every child's fear. <laughs> you really think as a child that you're going to encounter a lot more quicksand than you actually do. It's right up there with like Bermuda Triangle quicksand. <laughs> All of those things that Lava. I was certain would happen. Right. Or I, had to, I had to seriously avoid. But quicksand is just so scary. It's always been so scary to me. No one wants to be buried alive. Right. It's like in cartoons. They really had it out for us. Yeah. <laughs> so this cop is getting buried in quicksand. He's waist deep. He had to have a crew of men rescue him. Yeah. And by this point, there was a crowd of onlookers that had gathered, not only because they're, this is a big crime scene that they're investigating, but then there's this cop waist like, deep. Quick, quicksand. <laughs> it's quicksand. Yeah. The shoe that they had found was a size six, green leather with a yellow strap and a turquoise button. Oh. It was determined to be a nice shoe with hardly any wear. But the green shoe would end up being discarded as it was determined to have not been connected to the murder. Hmm. So someone just lost their springtime shoe. It sounds cute. Yeah. Meanwhile, two different doctors had come under suspicion in the case. (gasps) One of the men was being placed under surveillance while another was being questioned by police. The doctor who was under surveillance was reported to have been seen in the area where the torso was found. The doctor who was being questioned by police had a 19-year-old daughter who had been missing for the last six months. Furthering the theory that this was a murder carried out by a doctor, the California State Medical Board reported an anonymous call that they had received by a woman who claimed that she saw a doctor carrying what she thought could have been a dead body out of his house one night. (laughs) Now, this woman did not want to be identified. She had just called the medical board to be like, I saw something weird from a doctor. That's nice that she called. The discovery of women's underwear as well as men's clothing at the riverbank near the crime scene 
also piqued detectives' interest, so they bagged that up and sent that to the lab for analysis. They also, at the same time as they were gathering evidence from the crime scene, they were eliminating possible victims in their continuing search okay. for the identity yeah. of this woman who they still had no idea. But as more women were being eliminated as potential victims, more leads continued to pour in. Right. They had hundreds of missing persons reports. And you're going to be doing cases on all of them. And I'm going to be doing cases on all of them. One of these women was the wife of a man named Leland Wesley Abbott. He was 33 years old and an ex-con who had served two years in prison for gun smuggling. Police became suspicious of him when his coworker reported that he had told him that his wife had left him the previous September for another man and that she was now living in Linwood. Linwood, of course, is where the torso was discovered. Mm-hmm. Abbott's coworker at the warehouse where he worked told detectives that Abbott asked if he could drive him to Linwood so he could, quote, get even with his wife. <gasps> the coworker continued, quote, The next day on April 3rd, it was storming and raining and Abbott came to me and he said it was an ideal night for him to get even with his wife. I, (laughs) I'm just laughing at someone who would do that. Just like, you got to keep that shit to yourself. (laughs) Look, you don't tell your coworker that. No. That's like close friend. Maybe (laughs) you tell your BFF, maybe your therapist. But keep that shit to yourself. So he says he. So this coworker is saying that he said to me he wanted to get even with his wife. I told him he was crazy to even think of such a thing and that he would be caught. The mm. the coworker told police that he had left work that day and that was the last anyone saw of him. The torso was then discovered the following day. Another employee at the warehouse told police that Abbott had talked about quicksand down at the L.A. River before. <laughs> This guy did not think things through. <laughs> <laughs> One of his coworkers said that Abbott also had a surgical knife. Okay. So it's not looking good for Abbott right no. now. Police located Abbott at the Chalal, Chalal campground, which is near the Angeles National Forest, and brought him in for questioning. He denied having anything to do with the murder. He said that he didn't even know the victim. He's like, I don't even know who that is. Like... Okay. I didn't do, I'm not involved in this at all. And uh, Abbott, he had arrived at that campground where they located him up near the Los Angeles or the Angeles National Forest. He had arrived there for a job around April 5th and he had been there ever since. Police questioned him about the surgical knife, which Abbott explained belonged to his father, who was a surgeon. He admitted that he had told coworkers that he had a wife who was living in Linwood, but denied having ever said or implied that he was going there to harm her. Abbott told detectives that the wife in question was actually a woman he had befriended earlier in the year who was having her own marital problems. He said he was going there to help her and he was merely trying to shield her identity. So he just said, I'm going to see my wife. Does that woman exist still? She exists. Okay. So no one knew he had a wife other than him saying that thing about his wife. Yeah. So there's no woman they can look for to see if she's missing. Well, there was a real woman. They did locate her. Okay. And she's like, yeah, he came down here to help me. Okay. Uh, 
Abbott told detectives he was never even married in the first place. Okay. He just called this woman he was going to see his wife. I see. Because he was trying to protect her. I think she had like an abusive boyfriend. Oh. So this guy got caught in a bad situation. And he had a few things that seemed on par, like matched up with what had happened. Right. And some coworkers who were like, "Ah, let's get this Abbott guy. Yeah, because I like how the coworkers like, I would never say that about my wife. <laughs> Seems like a little over the top. It's, it's a like, little over the top. Yeah. What are they trying to prove here? Right. And I'm a good and he, man. He mentioned quicksand once too. Yeah. After he saw the news story. Yeah. So could have been that. Abbott was held in police custody for two days before being released. There just wasn't enough evidence to hold him, and police turned their attention to new clues. They still kept him as a person of interest, though. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals, and during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th, Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. 
On May 18th, a group of three boys were at the LA River near Florence Avenue when they spotted an object that they at first believed to be a turtle shell sticking out of some quicksand. Hmm. One of the boys poked at it with a stick and he lifted it up by the stick to examine it. Mm -hmm. And this was no turtle shell. What was it? A human head. Oh. This guy, this little kid, I think he was, there was like a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, maybe a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. They were kids. He, he impaled this head with his stick, had it like through the mouth with the stick and was lifting it up. Oh, through the mouth. Yeah. I was wondering. Uh, so this Did was- Did the a, head have flesh on it? Well, or? this is May 18th. The torso was found April 4th. So it's a while. It's been a bit, and it's been yeah. hanging out by the riverbed. But it's not like a skull. It has some kind It has of some stuff, stuff on it, it still. Okay. Uh, this little boy took off running with the stick, the head on the stick. Oh, that to, must have been a sight. To f- <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Ollie, Ollie, Ox. <laughs> the boys ran to the road with this head and flagged down a car oh my to God. help them. Uh, look, kids were, kids were weirder back then. They could handle some stuff. They could, they could see, <laughs> kids saw some shit in the 1920s. They could handle it. So they, he flagged down a car. This woman pulled over and was probably scared out of her mind. And she drove one of the boys to a phone to call the police. Did the head stay with the other kids? Or did they take it? I don't know who took <laughs> the Me. Well, I have a lot of questions. Then, well, eventually the police took the head. Okay. But I don't know who, who was holding it while the boy made the phone call. It wasn't call. like out the window while they drove. To yeah, the she's place. like, don't put that in my car. Don't get it on the seat. Now, the medical examiner concluded that the head belonged to the torso <gasps> when they matched the vertebrae together. Ooh, gross. <laughs> the, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I hate thinking of vertebrae. I don't know why. It's like, gross. The medical examiner discovered that the head had been severed between the fifth and sixth Mm. vertebrae and that the dismemberment had been done with a thin, sharp blade. The cause of death was determined to be from a single blow to the head with a hammer as evidenced by the round indented mark left behind the left ear. Okay. The age of the woman was now believed to be 40 or older. Oh. So quite a difference from... Right, they, it was like 20... In her 20s. Yeah. They initially thought anywhere between 16 to 25. Damn. Yes. Yeah. An examination of the head's dental work determined that the woman may have been 40-year-old Laura B. Sutton, who hadn't been seen since March 28th, less than a week before the torso was discovered. Further analysis of the teeth and jaw would be done before making a definite identification, though. Okay. Laura's brother, a man named E.J. Groff, told police that before his sister went missing, she appeared agitated and was afraid for her life. (gasps) Groff told police that he had an idea of who could have done this and relayed a story in which his sister said that two Liberty Bonds were stolen from her. Groff told investigators that his sister was divorced in 1928 and since then had dated some other men. Police, of course, were now working to track down these men that she had dated. Laura's hairdresser came forward and told police that sometime in mid-March when she was having her hair done, she told her stylist that she had been attacked recently (gasps) by an unknown assailant. Laura said she was leaving her home one night and a man leapt at her from the bushes and broke her glasses and left her with scratches on her face. And she did have those. The hairdresser's like, there were scratches on her face. Laura did not report this attack, which 
police took to mean that she knew her assailant. Friends of Laura who were questioned by the police stated that Laura had said that she was afraid of being harmed by her enemies. Oh. She had given some friends that's, you know, one of those statements of like, if anything happens to me, right. you know, check it out. Okay. Whatever. It's not it's not natural or yeah. something happened. Some ominous warnings. Okay. So she had multiple enemies? They, that's to, just what her friend said yeah. that she was worried about something. Okay. That she was agitated in the recent, I guess maybe last month or few weeks before she disappeared. One of Laura's friends, Dr. Frank Westlake, a 58-year-old retired physician, told investigators that he had last seen Laura on March 28th and that she had asked him to take care of her pet birds while she went to Ventura for a couple days to settle a financial issue with her ex-husband. After not hearing from her for a few days, Dr. Westlake became concerned and traveled to Ventura to try and locate her. But when he was unable to find her, he contacted her brother and said that, and they said they had gone to the police after that to report her missing. Okay. On May 28th, it was definitively determined that the remains found at the LA River were that of Laura Sutton. Detectives theorized that the murder was carried out by a spurned lover. The persons of interest at this point in the case were Laura's ex-husband, Eugene Sutton, Dr. Westlake, and Ben King, who was a taxi driver who had dated Laura and had at one time lived in her home. Okay. So these three guys in her life. Dr. Westlake was taken into custody when police discovered that he was in possession of deeds to property owned by Laura, as well as her bank books and a large chunk of her money. Hmm. Kind of like the last episode I did. Right. Where that guy had, had all that... Uh, trying to get all that money, the inheritance from oh, the son. right, right, right. Police made these discoveries upon following the doctor one night as he traveled in his car to his son's home in Pasadena. The detective saw Dr. Frank Westlake enter the garage, climb on top of a box, and throw a package behind it toward the rafters. <laughs> Inside, and he looked behind his beach shoulder. <laughs> Real suspicious. I guess after he left, they like went and retrieved the package. I don't know how illegal that is, but inside this package, what was the bank books? Was okay. Laura Sutton's bank books? They're like, hey. It was also discovered that Westlake had become a beneficiary of her will and life insurance policy. There you go. Big no no. Yeah. He had known Laura for six years and told detectives that he was in possession of these items because he had been acting as her manager after her divorce from Mr. Sutton. He claimed that they were also in a romantic relationship together. He also said that in the days before her disappearance, they had gone house hunting together in Echo Park. Oh. So he's like, we're a real, this is yeah. a real item. We had a f- planning a future together. We're not just fucking. Yeah. Right. We're like going to get a house. driver. But yeah, this isn't no taxi cab situation. We're actually serious. Following a search of his home at 1810 and a half West 11th Street, Dr. Westlake produced letters claiming where he claimed that he claimed to have been written by Laura since she had been missing. He was convinced that she was still alive because he's like, I have these letters from her. Right. 
Dr. Westlake asserted he did not believe Laura was dead. In the letter were questions about how the birds were doing and the whereabouts of Ben King, the taxi driver. The letter ended by instructing Dr. Westlake to reply in the personal section of the newspaper. Oh. So instead of write him a letter... Wasn't this in the last case too? Letters that came. Yes, there were letters that came from the missing woman in the it's last case. It's like the case. oldest trick in the old school crime book. This is what I don't understand. Anyway, there, there's so many repeating things and you think these people read the newspaper. Right. Is this before? This is after. Okay. That crime was yeah. 1925. Okay. Maybe. Look, I don't know. That's but it was fine. before. Okay. In the letter that... Dr. Westlake produced, uh, like I said, it instructed him to respond to it in the personal section of the newspaper for some weird reason. Dr. Westlake then showed the police the paper in which he had responded to this letter. Okay. Like that she'd be looking for it in the paper. But a handwriting expert determined that these letters were not written by Laura. Right. At this time, detectives were also questioning Ben King, who told police that him, Laura, and Dr. Westlake had gotten into a fight on March 26th when he learned that she had opened a joint bank account with Westlake. He was upset because he had spent the last three years giving Laura money to help her buy property. And now she opens a checking account. (laughs) That's weird. With this fucking weird retired doctor. Yeah. And Ben sounds hotter. He probably was hotter. Yeah. Ben King. It's a seen, hot name. It's a hot name. Because I saw a picture of the doctor. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing not. Not hot. Yeah. He's got those scary 1920s glasses, the Ooh. really round ones. Yeah. He looks like a creepy doctor. Doctors can be very creepy from that period. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I look, because it was still kind of like not as like you could kind of become a doctor. It seemed a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't write me if you were a doctor from that time. <laughs> People are going to start to think that I like hate doctors because I have so many like episodes about doctors. Well, it's a fascinating phenomenon where, where it's an evil doctor. Right, because doctors are supposed to do no harm. Yes. And look, Follow I... Follow that code, docs. You know what? My grandma's a doctor, so please don't come for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to come for you. <laughs> she's actually a nurse, but she has a PhD. Oh, so she's a doctor. <laughs> she's she's a doc. She's doctor. Yeah. She's and her late husband, my grandpa, was also a doctor. Okay. So you know what? I do like doctors. I like doctors. Just not these ones. No. These these ones are suspicious to very, me. Very, very suspicious. Okay. Now, Ben King was upset at Laura for opening this checking account. On top of it, he said that he had asked her to marry him at one point. Oh. So he's like, this is like a love triangle okay. happening. During this fight that they're all having at their house, Ben said that he was leaving, at which point Laura pulled out a gun and put it up to her head. Ben was able to wrestle the gun away from her, which he then gave to Dr. Westlake. He left her home, and that was the last time that he ever saw her. Is that what she got the scratches from? No. Oh, That was an incident where she was leaving her house in the bushes. Okay, but I thought she was lying. Well, she could have been. Maybe it was what she got the scratches from. Yeah. I'm just curious. This was pretty soon close to when she disappeared, though, because she had gone to see the hairdresser like in mid... So the attack by a stranger was just completely random. Yes. Okay. 
Dr. Um, okay. Ben said that Dr. Westlake came to his house and suggested that they go look for Laura at the San Gabriel Cemetery where her mother was buried. Right. Because apparently she went by there a few times a week to deliver flowers. So he's like, why don't we go to the cemetery and wait there and see if she's there? I see. So Ben stayed at the cemetery all week. I think he slept there. Oh. Like he literally camped out at the cemetery waiting for Laura to come. Dr. Westlake did not do that, but he did drop by a few times and told Ben to keep up the good work. (laughs) Jesus. So he pretty much employed Ben to just stay there. Good old, good old boy. (laughs) He's like, you're doing a great job, chap. Good job. Hot dog. (laughs) Police searched a vacant home in Edendale, which Edendale is what we used to call Silver Lake. Echo Park. Oh, right. Area. Yeah. So they searched a vacant home that was for rent in Edendale. Inside this home, they found blood stains on the walls and the floors. Oh. Now, the reason um, they searched this home is because a couple matching the description of Laura and Dr. Westlake had rented this place. Okay. And paid two months' rent for it. Inside this home, they also found a kid glove with blood on it. This glove was similar to a glove that was said to have belonged to Laura. And there was also uh, like a glove that was found in Dr. Westlake's home. Okay. So in this vacant house and in Dr. Westlake's home was like a set. Okay. Um, I mean, that's like hardcore evidence back then. (laughs) That's bad evidence. Yeah. Yeah. That's like not good. Dr. Westlake's house during, um, oh, sorry, the home was rented sometime during the last week of March. Like I said, the renters matched the description of Dr. Westlake and Laura Sutton. I guess they didn't give the real name. This is this is kind of an odd part of the story. Yeah. That they didn't have like definitive proof that they were the ones who rented this house. Much easier to rent back then. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, how easy was it to rent a fucking house in Silver Lake I guess then? if you just gave two months... Rent up front. Right. They're like, deal with it in two months, like if you didn't leave or something. Yeah. Um, Bloodstains were also found at Dr. Westlake's house, the one uh, over in Westlake, the neighborhood. He kind of lived near Westlake. It was like Pico Union, Westlake area is where his house was. And that's just like west of downtown. It's west of downtown is where he lived. So bloodstains were also found in his house there. But this time uh, in the bathroom on the walls. Uh, so investigators decided they needed to take apart the drain pipes. Yeah. To do some hardcore deep diving in there. Yeah. See what's going on in those drains. This was a possible crime scene. Meanwhile, detectives questioned an acquaintance of Dr. Westlake, a woman named Lena who lived on Bonnie Bray, about a gingham dress that she had been gifted by Dr. Westlake. Ben, so Dr. Westlake gave this woman, I guess, who was like his neighbor, a gingham dress for a present. That's weird. And they questioned him, questioned her about this dress because Ben King told detectives that that dress belonged to Laura. Oh. And now this woman who lives... On Bonnie Bray. (laughs) And now this woman on Bonnie Bray Street is wearing this dress. That's so weird. Yeah. So... He also said that that was like the last time he saw her, she was wearing that dress. Oh. Lena told police that Dr. Westlake said it belonged to his dead wife when he gave it to her. Lena. (laughs) (laughs) 
She must have really wanted that dress. <laughs> She's like, I'm not asking questions. Free, yeah. free dress. I'll wear a dead wife's dress. I don't care. <laughs> I don't Gingham give a dress. <laughs> During the course of the investigation, police became aware of a case from 30 years ago in which Dr. Westlake was questioned. <gasps> One of his patients, a man named Joseph Van Zant, was found naked at the bottom of a well in Illinois. Now, I read the newspaper report from this incident. This is from 1899 oh. in Illinois. It said that Van Zant was 65 years old and reportedly worth $75,000. Now, $75,000 in 1899 is quite a lot of money. Yeah. Although Dr. Westlake was never charged with anything, it was reportedly whispered about around town that he was the one who killed him. Damn. And this newspaper report I read, they were like, we don't know if it's a murder or a suicide. Nothing came of this, though. No one jumps naked down a well to commit suicide. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't think so. I don't buy that either. Yeah. Seems like a really... And this guy was a known guy about town. He was very wealthy. Yeah. I don't know if he would do that. No, it doesn't seem likely. No one wants to be found like that too naked. In the bottom of a well? No. What if you don't die also right away? That's what I would think. I'd be terrified of that. break your neck and you're just down there naked? Yeah. Waiting for someone to find you? Seems (laughs) awful. This is a bad way to go. No. But that wasn't the only case that Dr. Westlake had been questioned about previously. (gasps) In 1927, two of his relatives, a Mr. and Mrs. W.H. Brown, died in the home where he now lived. (sighs) According to Westlake, he had inherited the home from them upon their deaths. Convenient. (laughs) So this home he's living in, just west of downtown, that was their home first. Okay. They died. They questioned him about their death. Did they die together? It just says they both died. Okay. That's all we need to know (laughs) back in those days. Back in those, I don't have details about it. Yeah. Detectives also learned that in 1919, Dr. Westlake served 30 days in jail for a boxcar burglary. A boxcar burglary? (laughs) (laughs) Like a freight train, like one of the boxcars. Boxcar Betty. You know what? Did you read the boxcar children? Uh, No. Did you? why I felt like it's like when I was writing this I, I was thinking I bet Desi read the boxcar children like it I sounds bet she, vaguely familiar I but... bet she read all the boxcar <laughs> children dude I did I was I did read several of the boxcar children books but I wasn't that big of a fan of it like it was just was not I was more into like horror for children like R.L. Stein or, or like whatever romance, or, or like romance, romance for yeah. like V.C. Sex. Andrews <laughs> like, when I was a kid I liked sex and violence <laughs> I don't want to hear about children surviving. I was doing that myself. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what it was. It was like the boxcar children was like these like group of like orphan children who were like freight train hopping. I mean, it does sound like something I would have. (laughs) Like my favorite story was like the little match girl. Like I did like that genre. (laughs) It was always like kids having to share a crust of bread and a jug of milk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I did like that. So I would have probably enjoyed Boxcar Children. I'm going to look it up later. Yeah. It sounds good. I, I'm kind of curious to know if it still holds up. I know I know we have listeners who read Boxcar Children. Okay. 
but I immediately thought of that. What a, what an old timey crime to get arrested for right. Bur- burglaring a boxcar. Also, he's a doctor. <laughs> Here's the other thing, Desi. I don't have any evidence except for that he's Dr. Westlake that this man ever practiced medicine. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, I don't even know that you had to prove it. <laughs> He'd but, just open up a medicinal, an elixir shop. <laughs> People are like, oh, he's a doctor. <laughs> like, also, I think if you had money, it just seemed believable, maybe. Because uh, you lived in a nice house. And Please whatever. don't email us. Look, this is about... Doctors back then, not now. It's much more stringent uh, requirements, I think. Right. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> that doctors back then, all they had to do was have those round glasses and a and little bottles and and lots of brown tinted bottles. Yes, and with like elixir on with them. elixir in the bottles, and they had to have a little black bowler hat, and they had to have the little um, circle metal thing on yes, their head, yes. <laughs> and a bag, and a bag. The bag is key. The doctor bag. The doctor bag, like. They had on Little House on the Prairie. Yes. And he pulls it out. He immediately, the first thing he does, he puts a stethoscope on. Yes. That's the first thing he does. I he, know how to get through medical school back then. Me too. Even if there's no heart problem, you got to put, put the stethoscope on first and you check and you go, hmm. And then you put a popsicle stick on their tongue. Yes. Hold it down. I know how to be a doctor in 1929. Come on. We've that's, seen TV. That's how you did it. Uh, okay. Where was I? Boxcar robbery. The boxcar <laughs> robbery. On June 1st, 1929, Dr. Frank Westlake was formerly charged with the murder of Laura Sutton. He was arrested and held without bail. Investigators found what they had believed was blood in the drain of the bathroom of his home. Oh, okay. I don't know how. I mean, they must have had like a microscope or something. They saw like found, they said they found blood particles. Oh, I uh, betcha he had really like old pipes. Probably. And there's like a catch where they don't go through. I think that's what usually happens. Right. Like where the pipe bends, it kind of settles. Right. Um, they said they found like coagulated blood particles. Ugh, gross. So that was enough to arrest and formally charge him with all the circumstantial right. evidence that was piling up. Uh, investigators continued to search every square inch of Dr. Westlake's home for additional clues to build their case. And after he was arrested, they made a startling discovery. There was a trap door that had been hidden from view that led to an attic. And this was like a secret attic that wasn't just easily accessible. Right. Beneath the floorboards in this attic were several personal items and suitcases filled with Laura Sutton's clothing. (gasps) This man had taken everything Laura Sutton owned and stuffed it up there. And was giving it out as presents. Apparently. <laughs> if that's the thing, if he wanted this hidden so badly, why was he giving out gingham dresses to neighbors? Because it seems like he got away with it a few times. So he probably was cocky. I guess so. Among her personal items was her silverware and her typewriter. Now, the typewriter in question had been long sought after by detectives as they believed that it had been used to type up one of the letters that Westlake had asserted was written by Laura dated May 12th, which, of course, was after the torso was found. Now, these letters were signed with, like, her initials. Right. That's where the handwriting expert came in, but there there was, like, one or two letters that was typed. Next, detectives investigated the truck that Dr. Westlake had borrowed without permission from a guy named Louis Gross to transport 
Laura's personal belongings from her house to his. You know that guy who we stole the truck from was real happy to be like, yeah, and he stole my truck. More importantly. (laughs) He didn't even fucking ask. At the preliminary hearing, little Raymond Manriquez testified about finding the torso at the riverbed. The boys who found the head testified as well. Oh. The state called a surprise witness to the stand. Oh. A man named Brownie Owens. Ooh, I love him. <laughs> and you know what? That was his real name, I think. His name was Brownie? Yes, Desi. <laughs> they called him Brownie R. Owens. So why would they print that? They didn't put it in quotes. No, you would put something like Roger Brownie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was referred to as Brownie Owens. That's quite a name. Yeah. This is their surprise witness. I mean, I'm surprised. <laughs> What a surprise witness to get, right? Brownie worked as a cashier at a department store in Glendale. He testified that Dr. Westlake had him type the letter in which he was pretending to be Laura. Now, he didn't know at the time what this letter was for. (laughs) Why would he make someone do that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. Especially since he had Laura's typewriter. I don't know why he employed Brownie to do this. Yeah, I don't know how to type. <laughs> you do this for me. I'm a doctor. I don't know how to type. I'm a secretary. <laughs> right? That was that's secretary's work. What well, that's so wild. It's weird. So Brownie testified that he had known Dr. Westlake since 1906 and they had met in Oakland. They reconnected in 1921 when Westlake and his then wife moved into the home where he lived with his grandmother, Mrs. Brown. Mr. (laughs) Brownie Brown? I guess that's why they gave him the last name Owens. I guess Owens was his, this was his maternal grandmother and her name was Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, because now this makes sense because people often use a first name to honor like the maternal side last name or something. Sorry, if your last, it makes sense if your last name is like Alfred, yeah. maybe, but yeah. if your last name is Brown, Brown. you just got to give it up. Give it up. It's not going to happen. Also, was his name Brown, but then they called him Brownie? That's <laughs> a nickname like Jimmy. <laughs> Brownie Brown. Brownie. Honestly, that would be an amazing name. Brownie Brown. Yeah. <laughs> now, remember how I had said that Dr. Westlake said he had inherited the house he lived in from his relatives. Yes. Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Yes. <laughs> These were actually Brownie's grandparents. So they weren't his grandparents. They weren't his blood relatives, but Brownie's grandmother, his her niece was Dr. Westlake's wife at the time. Okay. So like by Kinda. marriage, his by relatives. Marriage they're related. But uh yeah. So he wound up inheriting this house west of downtown in that area. Wait, can you just refresh my memory? What happened to his wife? She just died mysteriously? We don't know where the wife, the ex-wife okay. is. Okay. She, they divorced. Okay, but this was her relatives that he got the house from. Yes. Okay. Brownie said that his grandmother had uh, gave Westlake two-thirds of the estate. 
And they came to an agreement that he would get the house on 1810 and a half West 11th Street. Okay. I don't know how Brownie's grandma hated him that much that mm-hmm. she gave two thirds of her estate to Dr. Westlake. Yeah, that seems fucked up. But they all lived in a house together. On May 22nd, Brownie said that he went to Dr. Westlake's home and the doctor told him of Laura's disappearance. Brownie asked why all of her shit was there and said that this looked pretty suspicious. This must feel great for Brownie testifying. <laughs> Oh, yeah. A few days later, on May 25th, Brownie typed the fake letter from Laura to uh, on Dr. Westlake's request. He said he didn't think of anything of it at the time. Okay. Because I read the letter. It's very short. It doesn't okay. say, this is Laura. I mean, it, you might be wondering where I am. Yeah. <laughs> it just says, I'm asking about my pet birds and where... To, uh, okay. the, the, I mean, it's weird. It's but, still weird, yeah. but he did this for him. Then Dr. Westlake signed it with Laura's initials. The trial began in August of 1929. The state asserted that Dr. Westlake murdered Laura Sutton to gain control of her estate. The defense sought to muddy the waters, grilling Ben King on the stand, alluding that he was the one who murdered Laura. Right. This was the jealous lover. They asked him if it was true that he used to be a butcher who worked with a meat cutter. Ooh. They're like, is that how you did it? Yeah. He's like, well, it's not that. He's like, well, it's not, wouldn't be able to, it's not that kind of meat slicer. Yeah. Yeah. You fucking idiot. You fucking idiot. (laughs) He's like trying to explain to them how this meat slicer works. It's the circle. It's the circle. (laughs) It's the little deli slicer. Can't (laughs) chop off limbs. It's just a little deli slicer. Okay. Uh, The defense also argued that it couldn't be certain whether the body was even Laura, but the state pointed out both the dental, like the the dental records and the fact that they also had matching hair samples that were taken from the corpse and the strands from Laura's hairbrushes. Oh. So this was like as good as DNA back then. This was as good as it was going to get. solid. To not have fingerprints. Yeah. They had the dental records and they had the hair sample. But in the end, Dr. Frank Westlake was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Good. He was sent to San Quentin. Dr. Westlake not only maintained his innocence, but was adamant that Laura Sutton was still alive. But neither Laura nor her limbs were ever found. Ooh. Look, obviously he killed her, but... Yeah. He, till the end, he was like, she's still alive, damn it. You gotta, I guess some people just gotta go. <laughs> he, he committed to the bit. Yeah. I mean, these are these weird stories where it's like, yeah, he clearly killed her, but it's like, well, I guess there is like a 1% chance he was telling the truth because you just don't have like as definitive answers as you do now, I think. Like, yeah. These cases are always, God, it must have been so easy to get away with crimes back then. <laughs> like, if I had to commit a crime, I would be like, please let me go back to 1921. Because it's like, they really had to like, it's like the opposite of now. Like they had to come up with all this circumstantial evidence and stories to make whatever physical evidence they had come together. Right. And now it's kind of the opposite almost like the DNA is almost all you need in some cases. Right. Uh, It's so weird. It's interesting. Uh, The other thing that is so interesting about this is there's so many similarities 
between this case and the case I did two weeks ago with the fake letters and the inheritance. Like people the are just stealing each other's estates. Yeah. Like, it's like nothing to them. But like this guy, you would think for a doctor, he would have learned from that dentist's mistake. Right. Like, do these people not read the news? I would think they read the newspaper considering what else are they doing all day. Exactly. And that was probably a big case. This was everywhere. This was like And he was already criming. Like, what you think you'd pay attention to the new techniques. <laughs> yeah, like this that. guy had been doing crimes that we know of since, uh, well, he could have murdered that guy, Van Zant, Right. Also, like, looking for new victims. Like, oh, that woman's a widow. <laughs> like, I'll go get her. Like, there's lots of reasons to be reading the newspaper. Right. Uh, if you're a criminal. I think this was poor planning. The other thing that I found fascinating was I didn't read a single thing about this guy's medical background. Like we said before, Right. It said he may have been an army surgeon at one point. But well, here's the thing too. Why kill Laura? You could have married her and gotten her estate and kind of dragged it out a bit more. Yeah. And gotten it sort of in a more legitimate fashion. Because I guess she really was more interested in this uh, taxi guy. I see. So his version of the story is that they were going to get married. I think that she, he was way more into her. Then right. he was into her. So then she, she was, might have bailed on him saying, I'm in love with Ben, the yeah. hot cab driver. Yeah, because she turned the gun on herself when he threatened to leave. Right. She loved him. He's all, he's clearly the hotter guy. Absolutely. In this situation. I didn't see a picture of him. I just, I just know, know Ben King, the cab driver, is hot. Yeah. And this guy just can't. And I saw a picture of him not hot at all. The no, doctor. There's no way. Uh, so yeah, I see. So she probably was about to ditch him in the love triangle. Yeah. And he is like, shit. Oh, I better. Yeah. I'm a doctor. Did he tell you I'm a doctor? I don't <laughs> believe, don't I don't believe this me? guy was a doctor at no. all. I, I don't either. I don't even believe it. They didn't talk anything about him being a doctor. Maybe he was like an aspiring surgeon. Well, he's too old to be aspiring. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start that young. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, in his view, it might have maybe back then it right. was like, I'm gonna be a doctor. Uh, I don't know. Surgeon. Ooh. That's gruesome. Yeah. I can't believe how many kids got involved. I like know finding the, the bodies. Uh, these poor kids. Well, I don't know about the one kid who was very gleefully with this head on the stick. Oh, right. That they're like, I'm just out there playing kick the can. Yeah. <laughs> Find it's a, a fucking turtle torso shell. and a head. <laughs> right. Uh oh my so God. yeah, that's the LA River torso case. Is that what it's commonly referred to as? Like back then, was that what it was called? Yes. The torso slain, the torso killer. Torso is a very provocative word. It is. It sounds scary. I agree. Yeah. That's why I picked this case. Absolutely. And because it was from the 1920s. And did you find this case when you were researching another case? Like you came across these headlines? I had this in my back pocket. Like okay. I had heard about this one before. Oh, I see. But I, I, I think I had originally read about this case on Deranged LA Crimes. Oh, right, right, right. Which is a great resource. Such a good site. But sometimes yeah. I will find it about another case while I'm researching a case because they'll mention, and this reminds us of yes, this case. I love that website. I haven't been on that website in years, I think. It's a great website. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. Um, okay. That's it. We'll see you on Friday. Bye. Bye.